From award-winning children's books to science fiction and dark fantasy, Jessica Marie Baumgartner has woven a positive message throughout so much of her writing. And this week on Excelsior Journeys, Jessica is joining us to share her complete story of how she uses so many different genres to tell so many great stories. JLD, do the honors. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. Is there a burning desire within to share your creativity with the rest of the world? Do you insist on pursuing your passion by any means necessary? Then you are on an Excelsior journey, and you are not alone. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. My name is George Soroy. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you so much for listening to over 80 episodes so far. We are not stopping anytime soon. I'm so excited for what the future holds for this show. And I'm also excited to let you know a little bit about a couple of organizations that I've just recently uh, signed up with. In addition to spending a year as uh, vice president and then another year as president of the Missouri Writers Guild and also being involved in the St. Louis Writers Guild. Excelsior Journeys is also part of the National Podcast Association and a great org- a great group of podcasts that are centered around the state of Missouri. And it's just simply called Podcast MO. You can take a look for it online. You can take a look for it on Facebook. You'll find it there. It's a group of different podcasts that cover all different types of genres. The main thing that we all have in common is we're all based in Missouri. So if you are a Missouri native or just a Missouri resident, as I am, it's, I can't believe it's going to be 10 years this August. It's, it's, a great, it's a great site for taking a look and seeing what kind of podcast this state offers. And it turns out there are a lot. And I brought this up because I truly believe that there is strength in numbers when it comes to what it is that you're doing, especially in podcasting and 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 writing in general, where there is so much dedicated to just one person sitting down at either a microphone or a keyboard or a pad and pen, whatever the case. And because of that, I got to meet our next guest for this week. It just happened to be at uh, in the year 2015 when I was doing my latest my latest go around with the St. Louis Writers Guild with their August with their August event, basically just called Writers in the Park. And what that was was literally what it sounds like: different authors that are affiliated with the St. Louis Writers Guild sitting down. They have a table and they get to shop their wares, and so they get to get potentially a whole new audience, you know, families come through regular people, you know, other people come through and they have an opportunity to collab to meet with, with some local, right. Local authors in a way that they never had before. And it's a great thing for the public because they get to all of a sudden expand their horizons and get to meet something that they didn't even know was there. And It's great for the authors, too, because they get to realize that they are a part of a terrific community. And I got to see that front and center when I got to meet my table mate in 2015. And that was Jessica Marie Baumgartner. And she and I immediately clicked. I knew that that 
right from the start of just like, okay, this person's awesome. I need to, I need this person to kind of be in my life. And sure enough, you know, several years later, she continues to be so. Jessica has uh, been storytelling since childhood. About nine, 10 years ago, she really got serious and has since put out over a dozen different works. Her main specialties are children's books, nonfiction, and speculative fiction. She's done short stories as well. She's done all different types of what they call genre hopping, which normally is a big no-no in the world of traditional publishing. But the fact that she's still traditionally published says a lot about the quality of the work that she does. You can even find some some of her work in a Chicken Soup for the Soul book. Come on. And uh, so she is also here not only to talk about her life as a writer, her whole Excelsior journey in general, but she's also going to be talking a lot about all things weird and strange. It's a YA sci-fi fantasy anthology that's going to be coming out soon. And I am so thrilled to get to get to hear Jessica's full story. And it is my privilege to announce to you to welcome Jessica Marie Baumgartner. Jessica, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me on, George. (laughs) And thank you so much for being here. So before we go to the beginning of it all, tell us a little bit about All Things Weird and Strange. All Things Weird and Strange. It's a quick read. So it's just a handful of authors who are very talented who came together and offered up a specific sci-fi or fantasy story that is just a little odd or strange or or has a little bit of that, that mysterious flavor that some publishers don't always open up to, but that readers really need. Yeah. So it's it's a really fun resource for anybody who's just looking, you know, whether it's escapism or whether you're looking to kind of plant your feet while letting your head raise up to the clouds. It, it's a really fun read that's going to be out uh, next month. Next month. That's fabulous. That's And the beginning of May, correct? Yes, May the 4th. Absolutely. What a great <laughs> what a great day for a sci-fi title. Come on. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so let's go back to what I always refer to as the lightning bolt moment, which is when someone experiences something, sees something, hears something and meets someone and realizes at that moment that that is the direction they want to go in, that's the kind of life they want to lead. When it comes to writing, storytelling in general, what was it about that for you? I know exactly when it was, when I got real serious about writing, it was, I graduated, I got my AA at St. Louis Community College. Mm -hmm. And I I didn't want to do the graduation, you know, anytime in my life that there's been a big celebration, there's also been a tragedy. So I'm, I'm like afraid of, of parties and things to celebrate because it just, it's how it's worked out. So Mm -hmm. I I was just driving to go get my diploma and I pick up my diploma and it was so boring. You know, I walk in and this lady at the desk is like, oh, let me get it. And she gets it out and hands it to me. And I look at it and I'm just holding this thing that that symbolizes an ending and a new beginning. Mm -hmm. And I was like walking back to the car and I felt like I was glowing. (laughs) And then I I sat down in the car and I, I was driving home and suddenly I I realized I had this idea for a children's book that just shot into my head mm-hmm. because, you know, I'm a big pagan weirdo and, and I love people <laughs> of all religions or if you're atheist, whatever, like I, I'm cool with everybody. Mm-hmm. But I had this idea 
to write a, a children's book about a pagan who is learning about all the different religions and really connecting with the core foundation of, you know, the golden rule, which to me is what embodies most religions, you know, or yeah. really all of them. Everybody's looking for that, you know, treat other people the way you want to be treated. Mm-hmm. So I, I ended up writing it on like a teeny tiny piece of paper the second I came home, this mm-hmm. little scratch paper and yeah. I knew I had something I really nice. did and and it was uh, I found an illustrator online a friend of a friend we were on Facebook and uh, and she she turned out to be really talented Laura Winship Finney she's she's amazing she's an art teacher at one of the school districts in our area and then we found an an indie publisher because a lot of publishers don't want to touch anything having to do with religion at all even if it's in a positive light oh, I'm and, sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that was the start. That was where I was like, okay, I'm a writer now, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember I remember the golden rule very well because I remember not long after we met and after after my my first recording studio was put together by my father-in-law downstairs in our old house. Mm-hmm. That was around the time when I was really kind of actively looking around for material that I could use to kind of bump up my audio and book narrating portfolio. And I looked, I looked up the golden rule and I was just like, this, this is, has such a great message. I definitely want to want to attach myself to this. And that's when I reached out to you to, to get the authorization to make it into an audiobook. And if I'm not mistaken, I think we turned it around in just like a few days. Like it was oh. it was brisk, but at the same time, like it was what it needed to be. You know, I think you Absolutely. only had a couple of notes, just about a couple of uh, a couple of things. And I just basically just went back and re-recorded the whole thing just to make sure that I got it right. And and it felt great. It felt great being being a part of that. Well that was that was the that was a little bit later because the first book was actually called My Family is Different. Oh, and the yeah. publisher was so small, it almost looks like a pamphlet. Like the book is so tiny, but it's good for small hands, which was the point. But yeah. the golden rule is like the sequel to that, which came a few years later. And and I was like, as soon as you talked to me about doing doing the audiobook for it, I was like, yes, please. You know, uh-huh. because anytime you have you want as many platforms for your work to go, you know, you want mm-hmm. as many as many avenues. And I was just, I've been hoping to have somebody do some audiobook work for me. So that was really perfect. And I was so excited and so grateful. <laughs> it, <laughs> it was, was awesome. Fun. It was fun to do. It, it was, it was a lot of fun to do. I think that wound up being my fourth title. I think that, so yeah, that, and it's, it, I, I'm very proud of that one. I'm really glad that, that you liked it. I'm glad that I was able to contribute to it and you know, one of those that I, I was definitely just of the mindset of let's just do a royalty share. Let's not worry about, you know, like putting any money down. It's a you know, it's a, it's a kid's book. We can go ahead and if you if you want me to, I'll just go ahead and start doing this right away. And sure enough, you were open to that. And I really appreciate that. Oh, yeah. I, it, we were totally on the same page, which is really great when you're writers. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit more about, you know, like, so you got the, you got the children's book out, the, my family is different. Mm -hmm. And what was that like actually getting that first book out? You know, something that had your name on it, something that had, that you can actually hold in your hands, knowing that it was going to be in bookstores at some point. 
it was very surreal. I mean, because we were in an indie publisher or with an indie publisher, Star Dragon Publishing, which nobody's really ever heard of, I did have to reach out to local bookstores to get my book in the stores. But, mm-hmm. you know, Subterranean Books in St. Louis in the Loop is like, that's always been my my book haven. And when I got to see it, they put it in the window. Oh, and I was nice. just, I'm looking at this in awe going, I'm an author now. This Tell me is, you got pictures. Tell me. I do. Of course right. I do. <laughs> That had to happen. I was just clicking away, just in awe of it. And it it, it was, it was very humbling too, because I felt like, you know, I wasn't one of these people who I don't have a, a BA or, or, you know, a master's in literature or anything like that. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. just like, poor Irish kid, you know, from, from these rinky dink apartments in St. Louis. And, and to have that, I, I felt like it was just an opportunity that had, it almost felt like fate, you know, like, it was okay. validation. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> it's like every, everything that you've been really kind of yearning for, it's like, it's all worth it. It's all. Yeah. Yeah. So, so did the uh, subterranean books, I still need to work with subterranean books, by the way. I, I feel like, I feel like I've missed that opportunity to real, uh, to do, to do any sort of business with them. I really want to do that, especially they like, are around, correct? Oh, yeah. And they're super friendly. I know that with all the COVID stuff, there's been a lot of restrictions, especially in St. Louis. We're not as restricted. I'm I'm on the other side of the river now. I'm in St. Peter's, which was hard. It was hard to make that jump. But but we have more less restrictions because we're in a more, you know, spread out area now. Like I'm on a third of an acre. So I feel like I'm having I'm hosting a mini farm (laughs) (laughs) thinking about getting chickens now. But subterranean books before all of the the pandemic stuff, they were the most friendly local bookshop. They they're very good to their authors too. So they have you know you can get your books into their stores easily. But if you do a book signing with them, mm-hmm. they want to be the first place that you do a book signing. But they they you know they pack the house and you'll be up there at the podium reading your stuff and talking to your readers and your fans and. I did for the golden rule. That mm-hmm. was, you know, my, my second children's book. We, we did that. Me and Laura, we went up there and we packed the house. I mean, we were at full capacity and it was, it was one of those just great days where you felt the love in the wow. room. Everybody was so friendly. Oh, that's great. So, so yeah. you went in with the, with the boxes of books or did they reach out and order the books first? I contacted them that that's the thing, you know, when you're an indie author, bookstores, yep, consignment and and whatnot. And but with the book sale, with the book signing, they have a little bit more leeway with you and you get a little bit more off the top. So even better. Yeah. When you when you're selling at the signing, because they they like that they want you to come in and and draw more people in. And and it's, you know, a win win situation for both both parties. So it's definitely worth it to reach out and not be afraid to, you know, contact local shops. And I've in the past, you know, I I've reached out to national shops and just been like, will you put this in your store? And and it it boosts sales. It really does, because some local shops will be like, oh, sure. You know, it sounds like a cute little story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's just it's hard if you're an introvert. I'm an extrovert. You know that like I, oh, yeah. I love people. So mm-hmm. so it's it's good to reach out. I feel like I'm an, I myself am like an extrovert trapped in an introvert's body. 
<laughs> I get that. Yeah. You know, like I, I want, there is so much, so much, so many times I just like, I want to get out there and, you know, put myself out there at, at the best possible platforms. But then there's always that fear of, you know, like of rejection or whatever that just kind of like makes me pull back a lot. So it's something that I, I definitely need to, I just need to get over. It's <laughs> like the, yeah. and, and this, this show has been, has been a real big boost toward that. But just getting to have all these terrific interviews and getting to meet all these great people. And so many of them are already friends, but at the same time, just like getting to getting the privilege of hearing their story, just like I'm hearing yours. So that I hope will continue to help. And yeah. once, and I, I would definitely love to work with Subterranean. They sound like uh, sound like a great group to work for, to work with. Absolutely. I, I really just, I, I can't say enough about them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so you have, so you have that first book, obviously the signing at Subterranean. Now, when you say they, you pack the house, how many are, are we talking like 50? Yeah, about 50. I mean, for a book, it, it's not like we're at the Carnegie Hall and we're, you know, we've got thousands of people. I mean, it, it's about 50. I think capacity might've been 60 or 70, but it felt like there were just people like everywhere. <laughs> fabulous. That yeah. is fabulous. I, I love that. I love that. So, so now you have, you know, there's the children's books, but there's also the nonfiction and the speculative fiction. Yes. Um, what came first? What came next? I should say. The, well, this is a bit of a long story. The speculative fiction came next. Speculative fiction to me, like I grew up reading like Roald Dahl. So it's kind of like a mix of the children's and the speculative fiction and Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury is oh, wow. a big one on me. Yeah. So you're mixing that's those a, two. It's kind of great. Group, grouping right there. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I, my first husband who we're divorced, you know, it just, it was not right for me. And, and there's a whole long story there, which of course, you know, anytime you attach yourself to somebody and then you realize it's just wrong, mm-hmm. it, it's very hard on everybody but he was so big on sci-fi and fantasy and he was very big on Neil Gaiman mm-hmm. and I like Neil Gaiman his work is good but a lot of it's just retellings and and some of it is is very thin work it's not very it doesn't have a lot of extreme depth and and you know Ray Bradbury his work is so deep sometimes you you really have yeah. to chisel at it mm-hmm. and it's it's literature and he was, you know, he introduced me to Charles DeLint, who is mm-hmm. like the Canadian Neil Gaiman, and his work is is kind of follows the same vein, but it is a little deeper. So I do like him a lot. But the the speculative fiction, it started out as me almost trying to appease this person in my household, trying to because he wanted to be a writer, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I feel yeah. bad. I feel like I kind of stole that from him. Aww. But but I was always a creative person, you know. I I had a background in music and. Music was so good to me because of the the storytelling elements of songwriting. Mm-hmm. That was a big deal to me. So I was able to infuse that as I kind of veered into this whole other career that I didn't even realize I was going toward. And so there was there was a point, and it, it's kind of a, a sad thing, but when the first children's book was coming out, I was really nervous because I didn't know how well it was going to do. I didn't know if it was going to be well-received. You know mm-hmm. how it goes before, even if, if it's your 50th book, you know, like right before it's released, you start getting real anxious, real nervous. You can't sit still and you're just, you have to distract yourself. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, I, rem- been- I remember being a mess the, the night before the... Uh- the second edition of Excelsior was launched. 
I was I was a mess. <laughs> my, wife can say, my wife can definitely say that. I'm like I was looking for like the the worst possible like stories and everything j- just as an excuse to just <laughs> like it was. Oh, it, I was I was really I was really, you know, not not in a happy place where I should have been. Where I should like my book is coming out, you know, like I got, you know, like my publisher put the poster in in the bookstore window, like everything was everything seemed like everything was where it should be. And then all of a sudden I was just like just a mess. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, thank heavens for our support systems. But I realized at that point that my support system wasn't very supportive because we went for a hike. Because I, I love being in nature. I'm a big nature nut. And we went to Castlewood State Park and we were just walking the trails. And I, I love being there, you know, just mm-hmm. kind of reminding myself of of where I come from and, and what really matters in life. And we were walking and I, I guess I was probably repeating myself and, and just kind of letting the anxiety out a little bit too much. But he just got so angry and shouted at me. It's just a children's book. And that hurt so bad. I don't know if he meant it that way, but to me, it felt like my career didn't matter to him because I wasn't really writing real literature. I was just writing work for children. And so I spent the next like year or two, even though like the children's book hit number 18 in our genre on Amazon, which we know Amazon genres are everything, but there's so many of them, you know, it's not that hard, but but it felt really good to know that we were in the top 20. And and so, but at the same time, I had this little cloud hanging over me that that the man who was supposed to support me thought less of my work because I wasn't doing the work that he liked. So I tried to start, you know, and I loved sci-fi and fantasy, but to me, that's, it's such a big genre looking at Ray Bradbury and Edgar Rice Burroughs and these big names that I really love, you know, Ursula K. Le Guin, trying to live up to that, I really struggled. And I, I was writing all these short stories and I started a, a series. I was trying to do like the, the serialized novel. That's where Embracing Entropy came in. Yeah. And, and I really loved that story and, and writing it is so important to me. And it was a big part of, of me discovering who I am as an author and that, you know, speculative fiction is for me to write, but it's, it's something that's more of a, of a fringe thing that I do when I need to take the pressure off of the, the more structured writing that I do that gets a little bit more love. Yeah. But that was, that was when the marriage started falling apart was when Mm. he, you know, was shouting at me that it's just a children's book. And I, I'll never forget that. And that will always be with me. And it just, you know, he never wanted to celebrate with me. You know, when things came out, every time I had a book release, every time I had a new short story in a publication, he was just like, that's great. And then would walk away. And it hurt so bad. (laughs) That, oh man, that's, that's such a shame. They just don't. I don't think he meant it. I don't know. I don't think he consciously was doing that either. Yeah. You know, I like that. that They they just, you know, people don't realize just how important a support system is for an author, for any sort of creator who is who has to do something alone, who has to go it alone. You know, having the having the support of someone just, you know, just some pats on the back, just the attaboys or whatever. It really makes a difference. It really does. does. And and my kids did that a lot. My I had it was funny because where he was telling me, 
you know, oh, you're just a children's writer. I had Anna, I guess she was a toddler when I started writing and mm -hmm. she, she's like my editor at this point, she's 11 and she's <laughs> such a bookworm. She reads everything before it comes out and she goes through and she'll find the mistakes because I'm dyslexic and, and she knows that and she's not. So, mm -hmm. so it's really funny that she really, she was the one who kind of was telling me, mommy, you're better than this. Don't listen to him. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. It That's, was, it was strange. Now you're talking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And both of them, you know, once, once Lexi was born and, and she was able to articulate it, the two of them were just so gung ho about my work that, that when the divorce came, they, you know, we were the three musketeers. They really, they really, helped me through that and I tried to do my motherly duties and in, in telling them you know this is not your fault you're good kids and your dad loves you and I love you and and we're going to get through this and there are different types of families and and it's okay yeah and, uh, and I'm remarried now and it, it's like mm -hmm. it's funny because it's it's been like a 180 you know my my real husband is what I like to call him <laughs> because he he is that support system he is the one who's always like anytime I'm not sure about something he's like you need to do this this yeah. is what you do you're mm -hmm. the only person who can do it the way that you do it and and man That's fabulous hearing <laughs> that <laughs> it really matters <laughs> yeah and and you have a, you have another kid too right yeah, I have two now. Oh my gosh, I I had a I had a quarantine baby. <laughs> I did, I did. I I had my son Wyatt. I guess in 2018, and yeah. then in 2020, we had Carlin, named after George Carlin, just to oh, that's everybody. <laughs> yeah, that is uh, he was born in September. <laughs> we did not plan it that way. We we well. We, we were talking about having another child and we conceived right before the pandemic set in. Oh, wow. And so, and I'm a big home birther. So it, mm -hmm. it worked out like our house didn't really change that much. You know, we're on a third of an acre. I'm a writer. Mm -hmm. I write for a local company. So I get to write for a living. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I do home births. So we just called the midwife and she was like, oh yeah, sure. I'll, I'll be over, you know, and, and we did our regular visits and, and it mm -hmm. was and actually, Carlin came out so easily. She walked in the door a minute after he was born. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, it, it's that's a wow. I, someday I'll write about the home birthing experiences because I've had four of them. But that was last year was a crazy year. And we've yeah. all been looking to this year as just this beacon of hope. And it's been there's been so many bright spots in this year. So much good news and good energy from everybody in the creative industries and mm -hmm. There's a lot of good out there right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I love I love that he was named after George Carlin too. Like that's, yeah. that's fabulous. <laughs> I had I had a I had a you'll appreciate this. I had mm -hmm. in the late nineties, I was I was working for I was doing just like part-time work for this old software consulting center. And I the second floor of our building was one of the higher end salons. So it's like it was like John Mahan or something like that. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. It was one of those you had to get a reservation for, you know. And Ugh. so I am coming back from lunch. I, ha I have my lunch in hand. I'm going back up to the office. And two other, two other guys get in there. They start, you know, chatting with each other. And I sit. And just as the door is shutting, I hear, room for one more? And I <laughs> my arm out. And George Carlin walks in. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> 
said, that would be so amazing. He, he says, th- he says, thank you. I say, you know, like, you know, no problem. The door shuts and I look over at him. these. The other two guys are just still yapping away at each other. They, you know, they're completely oblivious. But I look over at George. He looks over at me and he smiles and I oh. smile back and I just nod. And as if <laughs> as if I was saying, like, I know who you are. I'm not saying a thing. And, <laughs> and I'm not going to bother you, Mr. Carlin. <laughs> right. And then, you know, the second floor comes out. Apparently he had a reservation. You know, he gets he gets out and everything. He nods back to me. I nod back to him. And that was it. And then, you know, like wow. the two guys start going like, I think that was George Carlin. I was just like, you guys. <laughs> That's so cool, though. <sighs> I'm very, very jealous now. <laughs> it, was, it was it was great. It was definitely like, you know, it's one, one of those definitely one of those top celebrity moments for me. Yeah, um, yeah that was that was so cool. To me, just I mean, like Carlin is the greatest, you know, it will always be. And knowing that uh, knowing that his legacy is, you know, kind of carried on through through your son. I think that's I think that's terrific. Now, obviously, when he gets a little bit older, he's going to (laughs) be introduced to his material. (laughs) There's a but there's a wide body of work there. You know, he did some of the more stuff, too, which he was not a huge fan of. But but it's good for the conductor. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. And that one he did. He did the voice for Thomas the, the train. But he also did some of his stand up like in the 80s in the early 80s it was a little flat like he yeah. he was talking about like dogs and football and whatnot my kids love that stuff mm-hmm. so so i'm like there's you know there's an evolution you can start with the easy stuff and then just kind of bring them into it in adulthood and yeah. and you know it comes full circle <laughs> absolutely absolutely i wow. just i remember i and i remember the life is worth losing special that he did and it felt just kind of a downer like it was yeah. it, it wasn't it wasn't as it wasn't as strong and it felt more didactic and everything it just didn't feel like like the energy was there but then he turns around like in 2008 he he does it's bad for you and oh man back in like i mean it's a shining bright light it was just like you know i'm back <laughs> and and it was yeah. just, just an amazing feeling so i'm so glad that even though he's not with us anymore i'm so glad that he went out on that high of a note that's that to me really really is is something i'm just glad he didn't go out with life is worth losing i'm glad he went out with it's bad for you because that was yeah that was just a terrific terrific special so getting back to you though so you have the speculative fiction i didn't know that it was serialized too that's that's really cool so that's kind of what i did with from parts unknown so so with you did you did you basically just have all this all the parts kind of combined in one omnibus edition did you have them sold separately what was the what was your what pattern did you choose with that I I went with a newer indie publisher who was a friend of a friend. She was starting her own company and she was, you know, just getting her her herself seasoned. And uh, she she loved the Embracing Entropy story. And I told her I, I have three parts, you know, and, and I started, I wanted it to be a trilogy because I hate sequels, but I love trilogies. <laughs> so if there are three parts, I'm okay with the second one. I'm not okay with it if it's one and two, but I don't know why. That's my weird number OCD. But okay. <laughs> So I had this book that I'd already written called By the Stars, and it was this great epic sci-fi journey. You know, Earth is dying and the people don't really know why it's dead, but but they're getting onto the ship and this alien race has come to save us, basically. Hmm. And there are these very 
benevolent people. They don't understand selfishness or jealousy or anything like that. And so it starts with them boarding the ship and Mm. it's this mom and her kids and they're going on this journey across the stars and her husband is a military man with the air force. And so he's staying behind just for a short while to help make sure they get everybody that they can off the planet before it collapses. Mm. And so it's kind of like an immigrant story and and how they struggle to assimilate with the new people and how the new people have struggles. And there's a little bit of clashing there. But but the friendships that they make across those boundaries and things like that, those are so real to me and so important. You know, I, I grew up in a diverse area, so I feel like that carries over into my work. And I was just so excited about it but I also am a dyslexic author and Mm. I I did not have a great editor at the time so it was released just that part the the first part was released as a novella ebook and then we were going to do the second part and the third part as ebooks and then the whole edition was eventually bound in print but there, I do have to say, if you go back and you read it now, and it, it it's out of print, so it, sometimes it gets kind of pricey online, which is very strange when you see your yeah. work going for $200 online. And you're like, not I'm, a dime of it? <laughs> no, and I'm, well, at the same time, I'm like, I don't want people to pay that much for my work ever. Like, I mm-hmm. feel like my work should not be, not that it's not good enough to be that expensive, but that, like, my work is for everybody. You know, yeah. I, I grew up really poor, so, mm-hmm. so when when people are paying that much for my book, I feel like it's kind of a, a middle finger to the people out there who can't afford that. And I don't like that. I'm not yeah. okay with that. So someday, if I ever could, I'd like to get it back in print. But it, it just didn't, it didn't have the run that I wanted it to because there were a lot of technical errors and and some mistakes in there and, and just easy little things that could have been fixed if I had had an editor with a better eye. And I look back on it and it was a great learning experience, though, because everybody who loves the book is like, I really love the story. You really drove it home. And they were like, the mistakes don't matter because I really liked what you did with the characters. Mm -hmm. And it's good to hear that. It is really good to hear that. But at the same time, like my mom and my sister are my biggest critics. Like they think they're editors. So if they are not appeased, I know I did something wrong. And my sister's like, I just can't read this book, Jesse. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going to re-edit it and re- <laughs> republish it someday. Nice. I just, I'm not at that point yet. Maybe when I'm like 50 or something. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But that journey doing the serialized novel, I felt, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, oh, I'm tapping into Dickens now, you know, because <laughs> that's, you know, that was his big deal. Mm-hmm. And, and Jane Eyre was like that too. And Jane Eyre is a, a huge story for me. I love that story. You know, the, the Gothic with the Cinderella weirdness and, yeah. and the satire too. There were satirical elements. She's like making fun of romance stories at the same time. I love all of that stuff. So, mm-hmm. but embracing entropy has like this, bittersweet but but great love you know these these passion projects that I've done that's really what the speculative fiction became because I was trying so hard to please you know my ex-husband when we were married trying to show trying to prove to him that I was good enough I wasn't just a children's book author I was an author right and I guess that was a good part of my life, even though it, it didn't work out in my personal relationship because for my career it it told me that I really wanted this. Yeah. You know, I, 
I didn't grow up wanting to be a writer. I thought writers were supposed to be drunk old men like Hemingway who hated everything. (laughs) You know, women were evil. I can't write. I'm a woman, you know, like all that silliness, which is ridiculous. But but it, it it definitely pushed me to work harder. And the short stories, I think, that I still write, because I'm not really doing novels anymore in speculative fiction. Mm-hmm. It's it's too much right now. I could I could revisit it someday. But the short stories and f- speculative fiction, they just pour out of me. You know, I have a nightmare or I have a dream and I wake up and I'm like, this has to happen. Yeah. <laughs> I'm That's doing great. this today. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. so there's speculative fiction, but then there's an interesting little wrinkle in all of this, and that's the nonfiction. <laughs> oh, the nonfiction. <laughs> so, all right. So let's paint this picture. So you've already gotten the children's books out. You've gotten, you made some headway with speculative fiction, but then there's nonfiction, which is not normally something that people would immediately go toward, especially when they're, you know, when they have set themselves up as fiction writers. So not to say that, not to say that they don't, ever happen. Obviously, like one of my favorite books of all time is Stephen King's book on writing. Right. Um, so, so what was it for you? What was that sort of impetus that moved you in that direction? So at the beginning, <laughs> we have to rewind here. <laughs> yep. When I'm, when I'm starting my children's book, I had a friend who, well, I guess there were a couple of incidents. I went to the Pagan Picnic in St. Louis at Tower Mm -hmm. Grove Park, which is this huge event. And it's just people from all walks of life. Everybody's welcome. You know, my mom's a Christian, my sister's an atheist and they love coming. Um, And and it's just people hanging out and and sharing their love of of life. And there's vendors with food. And, and, you know, I, I always sell books there, which they, they shut down last year, of course, and they're not, they're canceled for this year, but eventually I hope they do return. But I went to the kitty corner with my daughter before Lexi was born. So it was my eldest, Anna. And, and we were just, you know, doing a little craft and I was talking to the lady who was running the table and she was asking me about being a pagan parent because, you know, there, there aren't a lot of people who talk about, you know, you talk about parents who are Christian and parents, you know, who are Jewish. There are lots of children's books, you know, about monotheistic religions, but not so much in the pagan religions. Mm -hmm. And so we were just talking and she was like, you need to write this down because you're, you articulate it very well. And so I I thought about it and there was a a pagan children's author there, Wes Lyon Martin, I do believe she wrote like an ordinary girl, a magical child. Mm -hmm. And, and I went to her booth and I bought one of her books and I I have this this thing and maybe I shouldn't share it. I don't know. I, I might be stealing, but I looked at her bio and I saw where she was published. And that's how I've always learned where to go for work. I look at these authors' bios and I say, where have they been published? And I go to that publisher and see if they're looking for anything. And maybe I, that is a good thing to share. I guess at the beginning, I felt like I was stealing some big secret or something. But like, <laughs> if you just look at somebody's bio and you see where they've been published, it yeah. gives that groundwork of where you should start from. Mm-hmm. Where should I go if I want to be a writer or if I want to tap into a larger market? Where should I go? Look at people's bios. Do it. Absolutely. But her bio mentioned The Witch's Voice. And I was mm-hmm. looking and there were all of these other pagan authors who had written for Witchbox, which was just a, it was like a pagan networking site. It was like almost like a social media, but they accepted essays and mm-hmm. articles. So I just wrote up something about 
you know, being a pagan parent and how it's not really that different from being any kind of, you know, every parent has the same kind of struggles. You know, we all want our children to be happy and healthy and well-adjusted and, and to, to find their own little groove in life. And so I, I kind of put that in there because I like to, I like to talk about our similarities instead of dividing everybody up. You know, we get so politicized lately and, and, and a lot of people, it's like, we're almost afraid to step out of our little box now, Mm -hmm. which is completely contrary to what I I was raised to believe, you know, we're supposed to meld and mix and, and have fun with each other. And so, so I wrote an article about it and it was, it it got published right around the same time. Actually, that was before my family is different. But I didn't consider myself a writer. I just considered myself somebody who was doing what I was asked to do. Somebody asked me to publish an article, so I did. Mm-hmm. And that was in 2011. And I think my family was different. My family is different. Came out in 2014. So this is this is a little bit more to the beginning of that story. But I didn't realize that it was my beginning. That's yeah. so weird. Piecing it all together. <laughs> but that article, it did so well. I got fan mail, and I was like, really? what? Yeah, I had all these people messaging me. And one of my first readers was this Christian pastor in Pennsylvania. I think his name was Roger. And I Mm -hmm. haven't heard from him in a while. I hope he's okay. But he was a very old man. And he just connected right away. And he was like, I am so glad I found your work because I'm trying to teach the people in my congregation about how we really are all made to be together and how every faith has some some truth and that it comes from love that all of it comes from love and it was just you know hearing this from this man and we went back and forth for years every time i published something he 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 was right there telling me to keep writing and and thanking me for for sharing my perspective in such a grounded way because you know some people in the pagan community they're very unapproachable you know mm-hmm. there's there there's some people who like play into stereotypes and whatnot and and that's okay if that's who you are that's fine you know stereotypes are there because some people do act that way but but I you know I don't wear all black and I you know I'm I don't really do a lot of like the deeper spell work stuff I'm more into like meditation Mm -hmm. and to me spell work is just physical prayer you know the reason you light a candle is so that you can physically feel the presence of the energy of your prayers that you're sending out to your God or to your gods. And mm-hmm. so that, that element really connected with him and it connected with so many people. I just, I kept writing nonfiction and I ended up, a friend of mine came over and she was like, you know, the St. Louis Examiner is, is looking for columnists. Yeah. And I was like, they're never going to pick me. I have no experience. She's like, well, you wrote that one article for, for that one place. And I was like, that one article from that one place, like she didn't even remember the name, you know, <laughs> I was like, that, that sounds like the most amateur, <laughs> like resume you could imagine. And uh, <laughs> I sent in, I was like, well, what's my angle? Well, what did I write about? I wrote about paganism. I'll mm-hmm. be the St. Louis pagan examiner. And I, I pitched mm-hmm. them. I was like, you know, I'm just a, a mom, but, but I do happen to be pagan and I have written about it. And I think I could expand on that. And they picked me up right away. That's it was great. my first pagan gig it was it was amazing wow (laughs) (laughs) to get to get paid to write like right like at the very start I was very fortunate and I feel like it was the right place at the right time I was very very lucky and and blessed or whatever you want to call it yeah 
And I just kept working. And it wasn't until My Family is Different came out that I realized that I was a writer, even though I had been writing since 2011. It was three years of writing articles and just little things here and there. And and I did always write the little short stories because Mm -hmm. when you're a writer, whether you realize it or not, you wake up and you write something and you set it aside. And eventually you think about publishing it if you're going to be an author. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so that just snowballed from there. And yeah, now, sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. The now the, the big thing, is, of course, you know, going from going from these nonfiction articles and then all of a sudden here you are in a chicken soup for the soul book. Now, tell us how that happened, because that is really fascinating how you were able, how you were able to get in there. That was such a big deal. It was my first time being able to walk into any Barnes and Noble uh-huh. and find my book. Oh my gosh. Wow. I could go in any city <laughs> in any town and yeah. find my work in a book. And I just, I was crying. I was, I was just like, it's one of those moments where you go, I've made it. Mm-hmm. But, but then you're like, oh no, the bar is raised. I have to keep working. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the chicken soup for the soul book, I did, we did Writers in the Park together and you were such a fun table mate that I was like, I need to do more events. You know, I I had done, I branched out to the Pagan Picnic and I was doing local events. And then I I decided to check out the local libraries and the Mm -hmm. St. Charles County Library. I I don't want to say anything against St. Louis, but the St. Louis libraries are, they're very, a little bit snobbier as to who they promote. (laughs) So I I noticed that. Yeah. It's just like they, (laughs) they just, they just reach, they reach out to, you know, the big names first, you know, that that the big publishers are really pushing and they don't seem to give much attention to the local authors, which is a shame, which is a shame. It is because we're such a friendly and lively bunch of people. We yeah, we like to fantastic. Yeah. yeah, we are. And that's what I'm like. Like your Excelsior series. Like I love reading that, and I I just like oh, thank you. Yeah, I, and I keep thinking like, when is the St. Louis County Library going to have like a giant spotlight on you? You know, and and maybe they have already, and I don't know of it yet. No, have, they haven't. No, no? Ah, <laughs> someday at, at the, it's going to happen. Time. To, to its credit, though, I need to get my own ass in gear and get Greater Glory finished so I can finish <laughs> up that trilogy. So I could say, True. here's a complete story here. So, yeah. But so, what I'm, I, I'm waiting for a box set to come out with all three of them because I have the first one and I, I think I got the Kindle version of the second one because I, I don't think it's on my bookshelf right now, the second. Mm. But but I'm like, I'm, I'm waiting for that box set to come out, George. <laughs> Me too. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I think it was... Uh, I think it was, what was it, Dorothy Parker who said, I loathe writing. I love having written. Yeah. And that's, that's where I, that's where I am right now. <laughs> getting, getting this draft done. It was just like, you know, every, every word that comes out now is just like, I'm so glad I wrote that. Let's move on to the yes. next one. And it's like, and trying to get this damn book finished. It's been sitting in my head for so long that it's, it's finally time to just get it out there. And I know my publisher agrees with me. So yeah. <laughs> fiction is like that. Fiction is to me harder. Fiction is so hard because you are not just writing a story. You're creating a world. Mm-hmm. You have to create characters from scratch, whether you're drawing from somebody in your life or not, you are 
walking into an empty room and having to craft your own furniture, you're having to, you know, take ingredients and build your own recipe. Like I am the most non-structured fiction writer. You know, I use, I, well, I guess I should say, I started out no outline, no idea of where I was going. It was completely just like a meditative work. And it was so hard. That is the hardest thing you can possibly do in writing. Yeah. Whereas just nonfiction. creating something out of nothing, yeah. Yeah, and nonfiction is just like, well, a lot of the nonfiction I do is creative nonfiction. So I'm just mm -hmm. telling a story of what happened to me and, and drawing from it. And, and so I give myself, you know, I'll write out to remember it because it gets rusty after a while. You know, I'll, I'll write down, well, this happened and this happened and this happened. Mm -hmm. And then you just slowly fill it in as you remember what happened. Now with more structured nonfiction, because I have started doing some reporting, you have, that's, that's harder because if you want to report, you have to be, at least I know journalism, the journalistic integrity nowadays is, has gone so far out the window that I, I feel like it's easier for me, even if I do have a little bit of a bias. I really try to set that aside though, because mm -hmm. I, I am, I'm old school in that sense that if you're reporting the news to people, you can have your own angle. That's cool. But you need to be reporting facts. You need yeah. to make sure that you have it correct and that you're not, you know, pandering to one specific group of people over the whole of everyone and the whole of truth. Truth mm -hmm. is very, very important in nonfiction. Yeah. And, and it's very hard to capture that, but it's easier with, to write it because you can write out the facts and then fill everything in in between. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I did an event in the, at the St. Charles County Library out here in Missouri. And they, it was an indie author event and they do it every year in November. And it, it's, it's really fun because you get to, it, there are less readers coming in to buy your work, but there are so many authors you network so well, if you, if you're friendly. Mm -hmm. And I met this table of little old ladies and I love little old ladies because I am like, I am a little old lady at heart. Since I was a little kid, I love baking cookies. I love telling people to go wash their hands. And, <laughs> you know, like, it's funny because I like to get dirty. I, I'm the person who wants to get in the mud, but then afterwards I'm like, okay, we all need to wash our hands. <laughs> so like, I, I've always felt like a little old lady. I, I, I'm a bit of a Kanga, Kanga from Winnie the Pooh. You know, I, I oh, like yeah. to mother people a little bit. And so, so I, I, I just was hanging out with these little old ladies, you know, and, and they were selling their chicken soup for the soul books. They, they ah. both had been in so many chicken soup for the soul books. And I was like, well, how do you get into one of these books? Cause I like those. And I didn't realize that the series had grown so much. They do multiple books every year on different subjects. Sometimes it's stories about your dog or inspirational stories about, you know, the time someone helped you through a really rough time. And, uh, I went on their website because I was directed. They said, well, just go on their website. They have submission calls regularly. And I was like, what? Oh. You're just asking people to send in material? And they were like, yep, you don't have to have an agent or anything. And I was like, this is exactly what I need because I am- Hell, even, I'm doing that. <laughs> yeah, I, I am 10 years of professional writing come June 19th. Juneteenth was nice. a very special day for me. And, and I, you know, I used to sing in the black community a lot. So I, that day is, has a lot of meaning to me mm -hmm. and, and the black community. 
but I, I do believe June, Juneteenth was the, the first day I ever got published back in uh, 2011. And so I'll be 10 years writer coming up here soon. And I do not have an agent, have never had an agent. And for some reason, I keep getting work. And I, I thank my lucky stars every damn day. Wow. <laughs> every day, because people have been so good to me, the readers mm -hmm. and the writers, the writing community. But I went online and they were looking for stories about teachers. Oh. Now, I, I am a homeschooling mom, but I don't consider myself a teacher in the sense that they were looking for. They wanted education stories from the education system. Mm -hmm. and, and I have a deep love of teachers. Anybody who can go into any school system and, and captivate and teach a group of, you know, 20 to 30 young minds, that is work. Yeah. <laughs> that is work. It's hard enough just doing it with four kids. And one of them's a baby. So it's really just three right now. And the other one's a toddler. So if we're really narrowing it down, I'm only educating two kids at the moment <laughs> at, at home. And, uh, and that was just because, you know, when we started, we were in an unaccredited school district and the mm -hmm. kids just loved the homeschooling so much. It's their choice every year. Do you want to keep doing it this way or do you want to go into public education? And, and they like being at home which worked out for us last year. <laughs> I felt like we were ahead of the curve there. Oh yeah. But um, I, so I, I was thinking about all of the different things in my life because there were a lot of teachers who filled in the role of my parents. A lot of times my mom, mm -hmm. she worked so hard for us, but she, you know, she worked a lot. She didn't have a college education when I was growing up and, and she married a man who had a, you know, he had the Irish disease and he was, you know, not always very, very easy with me. Mm. So, uh, and I, I try not to open up about that too much because I don't want to be unfair to people. You know, I, I, I have seen him in recent years and, and he's fine and, and, and good tempered, but, but he just, you know, when his, when the drinking and, and the rage mixed, it's not good for kids or pets. And yeah. there are some stories there that are very heartbreaking that I, I don't like delving into, but, but so, but I had teachers who, you know, as, especially male teachers, you know, when you have an issue with your father in your life, you have to have some kind of, of male father figure. And my grandpa, my maternal grandpa really filled that in a lot. My, my mom's parents were always there for me when yeah. my mom was working 18 hour days and my dad was gone for the whole weekend drinking and whoring, you know, whatever. I know that sounds like old fashioned, but that's, that's what he was doing. Yeah. And, and so, so I had some really cool male teachers, though, who were who were there. And I also had some really great female teachers who who kind of pulled my mom aside. And it was a fourth grade teacher who said that I should be a writer. And I mm -hmm. laughed at her at the time. It's so funny. She was she was very sweet. I think her name was Mrs. Wheeler and at, at uh, Hannah Woods Parkway District, you know, she was such a good teacher, but she pulled my mom aside and she was the one who told her about my dyslexia you know, mm. and she presented it in a way that it wasn't a disorder because people didn't really understand a lot about dyslexia at the time, but that, that it was my hand and my brain just couldn't communicate. Mm. <laughs> That's how she put it. She was like, her hand is moving so fast. Her brain just can't keep up. And, and that, you know, I am a hyper person. It's hard for me to sit still too. So, so hearing it put in that way, and then having that same person tell me that I should be a writer mm. was there you a go. positive influence. 
And I didn't even notice it until years later. But, you know, when I write, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll drop vowels or I'll put them in the wrong place. And when I'm typing, it carries over too. It's so weird. Your spell check is the most amazing tool in the world. <laughs> I really love it. And, and I'm, I'm really great that I, I can't believe my, my eldest, she's such a, a great editor. She wants, she always asks, can I read your stuff, mom? I'm going to fix it for you. And I'm like, thank you. Aww. That's so nice. <laughs> but, uh, That's so nice. Yeah. But, but later in, in high school, things got really rough, man. I don't even know where to start. My relationship with my father, you know, we, we hit a point where I, I, I broke away from him. My mom, my mom left and, and we all, my sister and I, we went with her and, and I ended up dating a guy who was kind of a lot like him. And Mm. so, you know, there was weirdness there. And it it was, it was really weird though, because after we broke up, I knew it was, you know, we had to break up because he was cheating on me and he was leaving bruises on me and all this stuff. And and when we broke up, we were still trying to be friends because we were in the same circle still, you know, and, and it's funny how the circles you run with, you don't realize a lot of it is a perpetuating cycle. You know, I related to the kids who were from broken families and who had been abused but at the same time, some of us weren't realizing it and we were abusing each other. Mm. And I feel really bad about that. You know, there was substance abuse on some of my friends' parts. Not so much with me. I, I, don't, I don't like being out of control of my body. I'm, I'm a bit of a control freak, very mm-hmm. much so. Drinking is something that I have to keep in check. But, you know, that, that's easier when you're a parent, in my eyes at least, because I always look at my kids and I'm like, okay, well, this is not even coming in the house anymore. But yeah, we were we were trying to be friends and it, but he was still leaving bruises on my body and mm. that just you can't <laughs> you can't have that in your life but I didn't realize it yet. And I hadn't seen my dad in like 6 months. My mom was working at the Chrysler plant and I was working a job. So I, I had a lot of these adult things going on in my life, but I was still an adolescent. I was 16 years old and I was working and I was basically living by myself because my mom worked nights and I never saw her really. Mm -hmm. And my grandpa had passed away, which he was the father figure in my life. And when he was gone, my mom spiraled out of control because she had just gotten out of a a relationship that was abusive as well. And, and so it was, it's weird because my dad never really laid a hand on her. He took more of his frustration out on me because I'm the mouthy one. But <laughs> but gotcha. he was very demeaning toward her and, and he was openly, she couldn't have any friends because he would cheat on her with them or they would come to him, to her and say, you know, he's been hitting on me. And my mom, she didn't know how to handle it. So she was just like, oh, well, I, I don't know what to say. And, and they would just distance themselves. So mm. she had like no friends. She was very lonely. And, and so was I, even though I had a, a large group of friends because all of us were kind of broken at the time. And I ended up, there was one party I went to at a friend's house and I got really, really drunk. And my ex boyfriend called me and and said some very nasty things to me Mm. and I I'm always the lighthearted person so people don't you know sometimes people mistake me for an airhead (laughs) because I I like to laugh I like to joke around Mm -hmm. and I am an intelligent person and it's taken a long time for me to to be able to say that to myself but um yeah absolutely you are yeah yeah thank you but I, I I kept a lot of that, you know, I keep a lot of that inside, you know, I was a bookworm, but I didn't really talk about literature with people because I was hanging out with a bunch of, you know, broken kids who 
sometimes they thought that was kind of stupid, you mm -hmm. know, oh, you're reading this book. Oh, and, and that's kind of funny because I, I, I don't know even how to describe that because there were people in that group who were also very smart and I think they had the same problem. Mm -hmm. um, so I got really, really drunk and, and I had him saying mean things to me. And then one of my best friends was really mean to me. And, and it was like everything escalated. I hadn't yeah. talked to my sister in a while. She had gone to, off to college and I was just feeling so alone. And I went into the bathroom and I opened up the medicine cabinet. I've never done anything like that in my life. Oh boy. And, and I, I found a bottle of pills and I just drank it down and I was gone. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it, it's stupid. Cause I don't even, it was like, it was a bottle of Advil. <laughs> so that was not going to kill me. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> it's really funny now to look back on it and be like, what were you thinking? You stupid kid. Right. Um, <laughs> Might as well have just been taking vitamins. <laughs> right, right. Well, it did fuck up my stomach. Sorry. It, it messed up my stomach pretty bad. And and it could have caused kidney failure. So I mm -hmm. ended up an inpatient for a week. And I was in like, it was like being in a mental institution with a bunch of teenagers, which I, to me, is like worse than being in a mental institution with adults because mm -hmm. it, I don't know. But, but, I, I feel like my generation, and I really want to stress this to anybody listening, especially young people, there, there has been like so many stories of that from our era that I, I just want to stress so hard. It's not glamorous. It's not funny. It's not something that anybody needs to go down. And I, I feel like I chose that path because I had seen so many like stars on TV talking about, oh, it's such a dark time. So I just tried to kill myself. And then like, I don't know why I, that influence or, I mean, like other people should always tell their stories, but because I didn't have somebody properly guiding me, that came up in my brain at that time. And it sparked such a stupid action that, mm. you know, my stomach is still, you know, I'm a pharmacophobe now. I won't take a freaking aspirin at this point yeah. because it just messed with me so horribly. You know, my, my stomach is still quite sensitive, but and I, I am, I keep myself in check on the drinking, but I'll never drink wild turkey again because that's what we had that night. Ah, and, okay. Yeah, but but that was such a tumultuous time in my life, and I had one teacher, one teacher, one English teacher, who recognized how much I loved literature, and mm -hmm. during that period before that escalated, you know, he was, he realized I was reading the Iliad and the Odyssey. You know, mm -hmm. I was very big on, on reading this, this epic poem. Cause I, I really hate poetry, but I love epics. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like, you know, the, the, the symbolized, this simplified like four lines about a flower, like, come on, mm -hmm. like, no, anybody can do that. But these epic stories, you know, Faust and, and uh, Siegfried. Mythology. And, uh, yeah. Yes, mythology. They just, they resonate so well. And so I was reading that and, and he was very impressed. And he was like, you know, this is like college level material. And so we were talking about different stories and, and he brought up, oh, what's the thing with Grendel? Oh my gosh, I can't even remember now. It's, it's one of the epics. Beowulf. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, it was, he was, he brought up Beowulf and mm -hmm. I, we, he put it in our curriculum and I hate Beowulf. I ended up hating it. <laughs> I don't like the character. It's one of those epics that I just, he's so cocky and there's so much, it just, I, I want to pick it apart, but I'm not that great at writing epics myself. So maybe I shouldn't, but 
but he in in the lessons he realized that I wasn't connecting to the character and he was like you know you should read Grendel because it is a book from the monster's perspective and so we started talking about how I love books like that you know there's a uh, yeah. it's a middle grade book I think called A Time of Angels by Karen Hesse mm -hmm. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly where this Jewish girl, and it's in World War II, this is before concentration camps in World War, or it, it's World War I story. Mm -hmm. um, but it is still a Jewish girl who ends up getting the Spanish flu and ends up being cared for by this very benevolent older German man. And uh, her parents are fighting the Bolsheviks in, in Russia. And so he's caring for her while she's sick. And she thinks he's this evil man because we're fighting the, the Germans. They're evil. And, and at some point, she realizes that he's being discriminated against by the people in America. And she's like, I wonder if German mothers are talking about the American monsters killing their children. Mm. And that perspective was so mind blowing to me that I carried that over. You know, I like those stories of both sides. Like yeah. I, there are always two sides to a story. There are always still just people who are being people, even if they're on the wrong side of history or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And so he connected with that. You know, we talked about that. And so he offered Grendel and, and we would talk about books a little bit before and a little after class. And, and it was just a bright spot in my life. And when I came back after I tried to kill myself, you know, we, I think he struggled with it. And I didn't, I didn't realize, you know, my mom had to go in and talk to the administration about what had gone on in our lives. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how much she told them about my father or the relationship I had been in or, or anything that we had been through. But my teachers knew all this information about me. And my friends were kind of, you know, they were supportive, but they were kind of distant. And, the, and everybody kind of handled me with, with these like special gloves, you know, like they were yeah. afraid I was a bomb. I was going to go off. And me, once I make a mistake, it's, it's like, I'm done with it, you know? So, so I, I got out of inpatient. I was like kissing the grass and I was like, never again, <laughs> never again. Uh, and I, I started hiking again and, and going back to places I had gone in my childhood to kind of reconnect with uh, with nature and and why life really matters and and having going into school knowing that everybody knew this about you and mm -hmm. and having to go to school with the person you know with with my my ex-boyfriend who you know kind of helped push me over the edge it, it was just so so dramatic and so not me that English class he was the only teacher who didn't treat me like that who just treated me like a person mm. who had been through something and openly, you know, was just like, okay, well, you know what? Everybody's been having a kind of a crappy year this year. We're going to have a special treat. We're going to watch Dead Poets Society. Nice. And I had never been introduced to that movie. And, oh, you know, brilliant. Mr. So Timmons brilliant. was my captain. You know, he was, mm -hmm. oh, captain, my captain. Like he didn't, you know, go against the system in the way that, that Mr. Keating did, but, but he, he saw what was going on and he realized that literature was helping me. And so he gave me that extra oomph that I needed to, to get myself back where I needed to be. But he pulled me outside of class before the big scene at the end. And mm -hmm. I don't want to, I don't want to spoil the movie for anybody who hasn't seen it, but it yeah. is, you know, it's from the eighties. Uh, and he pulled me aside and he, and he said, you know, I'm going to spoil the ending for you because of what you've been through, but the main character kills himself in the end. And I don't, 
I, I want to talk to you about this. And he just mm-hmm. kind of opened up about how I, I, I know you've been through a lot, but I don't want you to ever, ever do even consider anything like that ever again, because it's yeah. just not right. You know, you have so much to so much energy to give to people. You, you, you know, you're such a smart person and you're so nice to everybody. And, and it, it felt good to have somebody openly just approach that in such yeah. a such a friendly manner. And and I promised him I never would and I never will. And and that just I don't break promises. When I make promises to people, I don't break mm-hmm. them. You know, if if enough people break promises for you, you you realize how wrong that is. And and that that experience, it was so like I just spent forever talking about it. Sorry. <laughs> okay. But we're we're having like a psychologist moment now. But but I sat down and I wrote that story. For oh, chicken for the soul. And, and I that's, didn't and that's something and that's something that there are so many people out there that need to hear it that are just kind of right at the brink of yeah. where you were or even over that brink. And those words, who knows how many people, you know, like put down the pills or you know, yeah. stepped away from the medicine cabinet or just stepped away from the ledge, you know, like whatever they you know, like step down from the stool, whatever the case, you know, just like to, you know, not to be like, you know, not to keep drumming up like different ways to be all morbid about it. (laughs) Right. But this, but I mean, what you've done, what you're continuing to do is important. And it's something that people need to need to be aware of. And that is something that I, I am so proud of you for getting that, getting it in there. You know, that that's a story that, I know, I know that they knew was going to do a lot of good. Well, and that's, that's the whole point of writing for me is, is to connect with people and to, to make the world a better place. Not, not to get too, you know, romantic about writing because writing can be very, very frustrating and, mm-hmm. and it is a job when oh, yeah. you really get into it. But, but I, I really feel like every single person on this planet has at least one story, whether it's a page long or whether it's a thousand pages, there's at least one story that they have that's worth sharing with others. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, yes. Uh, yes. Now we have, we have uh, just a few minutes left here, but I, oh, wanted, yeah. to <laughs> Sorry. Sure, I wanted to make sure to, to ask you for anyone that's out there who is on the brink of wanting to get a story out there is they believe that there's something out there. They don't know exactly how to pursue it. What would you say would be the first step for an aspiring writer to get in gear? I would say, uh, I mean, if you're already considering it, you're already in gear. You just don't know it yet. I Mm -hmm. say, look up your favorite author's bio, the, Mm -hmm. the author that you want to be like, look up where they've been published (laughs) like I did and find the public, the, the smaller scale, you know, Mm -hmm. I I like to aim high, but if you get too many rejections in the beginning, it's really hard. And I got a lot of rejections in the beginning of fiction, but if you, if you look at the beginning of their career, look for their older stuff and what were the first publications that accepted them? What are the ones that accept unsolicited material that don't require, that doesn't require an agent? What are the smaller scale maybe lower paying or at the beginning, you might not get paid at all. Just the mm-hmm. the smaller stuff and submit your work. And the worst thing that's going to happen is they're going to say no. And how you handle that no, that's up to you. But mm-hmm. you're going to hear no. There's a, I, I remember this moment. I, I, I Just a little side note here. I remember at the beginning thinking, what if I'm just that good that everyone's going to want to publish me right away? There's that <laughs> hope. 
That's that yeah. little kernel of hope in the in your brain. It's never going to happen. <laughs> it's not going to happen. You're going to be told no by somebody at some point. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And you need to get used to it and you need to to be prepared. Be prepared, you know. Be ready yeah. to have a day of of wallowing or or where you just have your best friend come over and you order pizza and you watch a comedy to lift your spirits because you're going to need it. You're definitely going to need it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, and where can my listeners find you on social media? I oh I have scaled back my social media for various reasons. I think I'm going through my reclusive writer phase, or mm-hmm. more like my in-person writer phase. If you email uh-huh. me, I'm going to respond. If you send me a letter, or if I meet you on the street. I'm going to talk to you, but mm-hmm. I, I left Twitter and that was hard because I had 16,000 followers and oh, I was wow. very active on there. I was followed by Polly Shore and Margaret Chow nice. and Kay Diggs. Mm-hmm. It's so weird to say that. Like, doesn't it seem I got, like I got followed by Tay Diggs too. You know, like, uh, yes, Tay, Tay is doing it. I got to say, you know, like Tay Diggs, if you're listening out there, Uh, first of all all, hello big fan and you're doing it right because what you're doing is what social media should be all about which is connecting with the people that are out there he's reaching out to creators absolutely aren't that you know that haven't may not have a name yet but could very well be on their way to doing it so first and also tay diggs if you want to come on the show (laughs) <laughs> he has a children's book he might have two by now but you yeah open invite and yeah you just you, you just inspired me i gotta reach out today you should <laughs> I, you absolutely I can tell should. him i saw i saw him at the new york theater workshop in rent in 96 before oh my gosh broadway you know like that's its own story but wow. yeah yeah so thank you for, for yes mentioning that. yes i am always looking for for new connections and like paulie shore i wrote a piece about him after he came here and i saw his show and he was he he thanked me like like we, uh-huh. we uh corresponded just a little bit he's very respectful it's funny because like you know he how he presents himself as the persona versus how who he think who he is or who we think he is, I don't know, all of that stuff. I, I think there's a, there's a little bit of a dividing line there because he was very respectful and very nice. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm always, always trying to encourage stars to write a book, like some kind of an, a, of an asshole. I'm like, you should write a book and I'll help you if you want some help, even though I'm an amateur and I haven't been a bestseller yet. Right. <laughs> but I, I did leave Twitter. There's just so much politics on there and, and it took up a lot of time. So yeah. much time. And I, I miss it to a degree because there were a lot of great fans on there. But I, I stepped away from Facebook. I think I left the author page active, but I haven't mm-hmm. been on it in months. I just, Facebook, uh, there's, it's again, it's so political. People are always shouting at each other mm-hmm. and they do, they show you the political stuff above the happy stuff. I learned yeah. that the algorithms, they, they're trying to start fights mm-hmm. because I guess it gets more clicks, but I, I like the positive stuff. And so I stepped away from that. I left Instagram. I'm not really on doing YouTube anymore. My wacky Wednesdays are done. I am on, I am still on Pinterest because mm-hmm. that's a fun place to go. It's light. It's fun. You can find artists. You can find writers. You can find the creatives without all the politics. I like that. I like there that a lot. I am on Pinterest. I am on Tumblr. Tumblr mm-hmm. is a fun place for us us nerds to go. You know, the the people who, you know, when, when you're not like, 
it's hard to put certain people in a box. And I think mm -hmm. I'm one of those people and, and Tumblr is less boxy, I guess. So you can find me on Tumblr and I am on Minds because I am a big free speech advocate. I don't think mm -hmm. people should be assholes to each other, but it's our, our God given right to be assholes if we want to. Yep. Um, you can just block somebody if they're a jerk. That's my whole thing. Like instead of, you know, deplatforming people, if you don't like their politics or what they're saying or whatnot, just block them. Why would mm -hmm. you, I, I don't, I, you know, so Minds is my whole home right now because mm. there's so many people who are it's kind of anti-government right now a lot of libertarians which i i'm more of a middle of the road person i am also reporting for the new american which is a little more conservative which is is a weird area for me but i've, I've found like if you do write in politics right now if you want to tell the truth there's a lot of mainstream corporate media that is pandering to specific ideologies and and when you do that sometimes you're leaving behind the truth you know mm -hmm. i like to look at everything to me it's like i want to absorb all the information and derive the truth for myself but i i do like writing for the new american i like asking the tough questions that aren't being asked in media right now mm -hmm. so if you're not afraid to go into the politics route that is where my political stuff is being written and it it is it's tough <laughs> they're, they're, i came out swinging and they are they're very they're they're impressed with me but i worry about it because i i want everybody to know that i love everybody on all mm -hmm. sides of the spectrum so my website is where all of it comes from. That's jessicamariebaumgartner.com. You will find the happy stuff there, the sad stuff, the angry stuff. You know, there's a broad spectrum of nonfiction, speculative fiction, children's work up there. And it's, that's where I go to, to really connect with the people. You know, I'm, I'm very approachable. If you want to send me an email, I will respond to you. I've gotten hate mail <laughs> for <laughs> writing things before. And you know what? I always try to respond respectfully because I understand that my perspective is not the only perspective out there. And, and how I perceive truth might not be right sometimes. I know that I'm going to be wrong sometimes. And I want to be checked when I'm wrong. I want to know when I, I didn't hit the mark correctly. Yeah. So, and that's, that's a hard part of being a writer is, is accepting that that is part of your job. It's part of your job to know that sometimes you didn't do it right. And you need to acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. And I'm very big on that. You know, if I, if I, if I hurt somebody in some way, I want you to reach out and say, you know, this did not resonate with me and this is why. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily going to apologize for my work, but I am going to grow from it and make my work. I, I want to improve every day. <laughs> every day That's I want it. to improve. And my website is where I'm improving. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> and just like what, uh, what Jessica said uh, just before, everybody has a story in them. She has, you know, she is definitely a wonderful illustration of that because she has multiple stories in her, multiple genres in her, which I think is, is a real refreshing breath which is a, a real refreshing thing when, when we're in this field where all of us are basically just put in little boxes. Just like with Tumblr, you know, Jessica has, has a lot of different, lot of, lot of different reaches and I am looking forward to seeing just how many more she's got in her. So for Jessica Marie Baumgartner, this is George Soroy saying to all of you, Ever Upward, and I will see you next week. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. 
If you've never been an Audible customer and want to see what they offer, just go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs, download a title for free, and start listening. It's that easy. Why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. And with this free 30-day trial, you'll have your pick of it all. You can hear books of all genres, narrated by Jim Dale, Stephen Fry, Will Patton, Alex Hyde-White, Jeff Brick, Neil Shaw, William Demerit, and even a few by me, George Soroy. So go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and start your own 30-day journey with Audible today.